Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another glorious day in God's creation. I'm John Kowalski, and this is Rise Up, a podcast about life's challenges with solutions provided by the Word of God. Uh, today, I'm taking a little bit of a different, um, a, a little different route. Uh, I've been uh, providing podcasts and recording podcasts. Uh, that go along with our Bible study in spiritual disciplines. Uh, but I'm going to take a little sidetrack here. Um, I decided this year uh, to do the daily audio Bible again. Uh, I did it two years ago, uh, and I did the main one that takes kind of the Bible in, in order that it's presented. Um but this year, I'm going to do the uh, Daily Audio Bible Chronological. Um, it uh, takes a little bit of a different look. It kind of puts things in a little bit of a different order. Uh, and my brain kind of works that way uh, in an orderly and uh, chronological fashion. So I'm interested to see what I take from it. Uh, and already, uh, I've seen some payoff to it, right? Uh the second uh, chapter that they discuss in Chronological is Job. Uh, so I'm going to do a podcast on Job, and I'm going to call it A Study in Suffering and Faith. So let's start with a little bit of information about the book of Job. Um, first of all, we don't really know when it takes place. We assume that it has an early date. Um, because there are no references to the tabernacle, to the temple, to feasts or sacrifices that accompanied the Mosaic law, uh, the places and names within the book reflect a setting prior to the conquest of Canaan. Uh, and there is internal evidence that supports an early setting prior to Abraham, Isaac, and as I said, Moses, uh, for the narrative of Job. But the actual time of the writing remains uncertain. Uh, as far as what it's about or uh, the suffering, I guess, is what we think of most about Job uh, when we hear the book or when we read the book. Uh, Norman Geisler asserts that Job addresses suffering from five different perspectives. First of all, the author, which we don't really know who that is. Uh, the author is unnamed, but clearly is not Job or any of the others uh, in the book because it's written in the third person citing them. So it's unlikely that one of them wrote it. Um, the author, though, looks at suffering from the perspective uh, that it's pernicious, that it's satanic. Uh, Job looks at suffering as if it's a puzzle. He takes a very serious uh, look at suffering. His friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, see suffering as penal. It's sinful. It's due to sin. Elihu sees suffering, sees that suffering purifies, that it targets our shortcomings and purifies us in some way. Uh, and God sees that suffering is providential, 
It's his own sovereignty. Uh, Geisler goes on to explain that there is some truth in all of these views of suffering, but as applied to Job's situation, the friends were wrong. Job was not suffering because of his sins. God's providential purposes were being accomplished by his sovereign permission to allow Job to suffer so that he, his friends, and all who, array, uh, all who would read this amazing story may benefit from it. So there's a bunch of themes that go through this book specifically, and I'm going to glance on them a little bit, and then we're going to discuss in, in really great detail uh, an outline of Job, uh, and then we'll talk about what we should learn, some lessons that we should learn from this book uh, from a few different sources, uh, including myself. So we're going to start with BibleStudyTools.com. Um, as far as themes go, they outline that if God is almighty and holds the whole world in his hands, and if he is truly good, then how can he allow such an outrage as, as what happens to Job in this book? Um, the way that this question has often been put leaves open really three possibilities, right? God is not really almighty after all and couldn't stop it. God is not just. Uh, he's not wholly good, but has kind of like a demonic streak in him somehow. Or three, that humans may necessarily be innocent and just suffer anyway. Uh, in ancient Israel, however, it was indisputable that God was almighty that he was perfectly just, and that no human was pure in his sight. Uh, the author of Job broke from the traditional orthodoxy of the time. He introduces Satan, the enemy, the accuser, incapable of contending with God face to face. The enemy focuses on interfering in the relationship between the creator and his creation, us. Satan claims that the righteousness is fraudulent, that people only behave righteously for the blessings it brings and proposes using Job as a test, right? So some of the other themes that you can kind of pull from this is friendship, right? What kind of friend am I? Are you? Are we judgmental? Do we feel better about our own lives when others struggle? Are we selfless and humble in the face of struggle? Uh, are we even there for a friend in need? Uh, the next question would be, what kind of Christian are we? Uh, do we seek better understanding of God? Do we know all we need to know about God? Uh, do we think we do? Do we consider ourselves a citizen of the world or of the kingdom of God? Do we even act as if we know there's a difference between the world and the kingdom. Uh, the next question is, how well do we understand God? Is, is God just a genie who rewards us when we're good? Is God a warden who punishes us to keep us in line? Uh, is God both of these things depending on my personal behavior? Uh, is God completely disengaged and we're on our own? Uh, 
is God who he actually says he is in his own words? And we'll discuss some of that throughout this book uh, and podcast. Uh, The theme that hits me the hardest in reading Job is the difference between God's judgment and ways and man's judgment and ways. God's judgment and ways are so far beyond human capacity. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, uh, and most of my Bible references are from the ESV, uh, English Standard Version. So just so you know. Uh, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? So that's going to be a key theme throughout this entire book. Okay? Um, we're going to get into a bit of an outline. I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, And then we're going to start to outline and I'm going to keep going on this for uh, as and take breaks from time to time. This is probably going to end up being two podcasts. I'm sorry to have to break it up and give you kind of a cliffhanger, Um, but I've done the whole Bible study. I've prepared it all. So I should be able to do them a week apart instead of two weeks apart like I normally do. So. Give me a quick break and I'll be right back and we'll start talking about uh, an outline of Job. All right, guys, I'm back uh, and we're going to talk about an outline of Job. Okay, so bear with me. It's going to be a lot, but we're going to take it a step at a time. Okay. Uh, first is the prologue, right? The opening narrative. And that's from about one, one to about two thirteen. Uh, and in it, like one, one through five, uh, describes Job as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But the rest of the description is about family and possessions. In verse 5, it explains Job's decision, I'm sorry, dedication to his children, sacrificing for them because it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Uh, this early, we see evidence that even the enemy doesn't understand the capability of people to worship God. Satan believes it to be a show for reward, while Job so fears God, and by fear I mean respect, uh, he so fears God that he sacrifices for his children just in case they slip. Uh, ver- uh, book 1-6 Uh, Verse 6 through 21, Satan proposes a test of Job, which God allows within limits. Satan is allowed to take everything from Job that the world uses to measure a person. Verse 22 is the most informative to me. Uh, It says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In uh, 2, 1 through 8, Satan then takes Job's health. He's already taken all his family, his possessions, everything, uh, except his wife and some other family, distant family members, but he took his children. Uh, Now he takes his health. 
in verse 9 and 10, the judgments of Job's circle begin with his wife. In in this, his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So here at least, Job seems to understand that it's not about us. It's not about him. Good happens, bad happens. It really has, it has nothing to do with punishment or whether we deserve good or bad or reward. Um, in verse 11 through 13, we meet his three friends, and I'll use air quotes on that, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, you know the old saying with friends like these, right? Uh, so and anyway, at first, they kept their tongues. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. If only they had left it there, uh, this would be a very short book, and it would have nowhere near the impactful lessons uh, that it does have, uh, considering what they actually did. So in part two, or section two, uh, we start in book three, and really this goes all the way through to book 27. And this is Job's dialogue with his friends, back and forth. So first is Job's lament, right? In book three, verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? In verse 20 to 22, he says, why is light given to him who is in uh, misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Uh, none of us can claim the level of despair that Job experienced, right? I mean, we've all suffered and lost, but never everything all at once. Yet we cursed our lives, questioned our births, and felt that we would be better off gone. Maybe the world would be better off gone with us gone, right? The, the it's a wonderful life scenario. Uh, the difference between many of us and Job is his steadfast refusal to sin against God with his words or actions, at least to this point. Um, in the next section is what what is referred to as the first cycle of speeches. And Job's arguments with his friends it really happens in three cycles. And this is the first one. First, he laments, then they respond, then he laments again, and then they respond. And this happens with each of them. So right now, Eliphaz in uh, book four and most of five, uh, I guess all of five, uh, Eliphaz calls Job to honesty and consistency, right? Eliphaz first reminds Job that he had lifted up others in similar circumstances, when they were in despair and grief, uh, but now forgets his own advice. In verse 7, he says, Re Remember who that was innocent ever perished. 
or where were the upright cut off? Verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? In uh, book five, I'm sorry, chapter five, 17 to 19, he says, behold, blessed is the one who God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the almighty for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. So here, Eliphaz is really almost calling Job higher, saying, you know, you've helped other people through this. You know, let us help you through it. Or remember the advice your own advice to them in this moment. Uh, Job responds in uh, book six, uh, chapter six, verse 11, therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain at the bitterness of my soul. Though Job claims not to blame God, he begins to justify himself and starts to question the justice of God. In verse 20, he asks, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? In uh, chapter 8, 1 uh, through 22, Bildad then calls Job to repentance. In verses 2 to 3, he says, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Uh, he often basically calls Job a blowhard uh, throughout this book. Um, does, he asks, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? Uh, verse 20 says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. So here again, Bildad, I mean, he uses harsher words than Eliphaz did, uh, but I, he's not really attacking Job yet, but stay tuned. So Job responds in chapters 9 and 10. Uh, Job is clearly confused about what he sees as a con contradiction in the character of God. Verse 15 states, Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. In verse 20, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I'm sorry. I must have typed in that same verse twice. Uh, verse 29, Job gets to the place that so many of us, even today, use to justify our self-centered denial of God and our choice to live selfish lives. When he says, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Right? Have we done that in, in our grief or in our despair? Have we said, what's the point of following all the rules when I suffer anyway? Right? Have you heard the phrase, if you can't beat them, join them? Right? Yeah. What's Why work so hard at being righteous when there's really no reward to it? In a way, 
his argument is kind of disproving Satan already, right? Um, so Job continues to lament his unjust treatment at the hands of God. And in uh, chapter 10, verse 17, he continues, You renew your witness against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. So obviously he's feeling besieged and the only person he can think of that could be causing this is God. Uh, in uh, chapter 11, Zophar, the third friend, says that Job deserves worse. So here we go. It's ramping up, right? In verses four through six, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Uh, verse 13 and 14. Uh, and, and keep in mind there, less than your guilt deserves. He's lost everything almost, right? So his good friend Zophar is telling him, you deserve worse. Verse 13 and 14, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hand toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Um, verse 20, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last. Um, Job's answer to him comes really in three parts in, in uh, chapter 12. First, he says, the Lord has done this, right? As much as he claims that God is blameless, his words speak his real belief. He maintains his righteousness and unjust treatment at the hands of God. In verse 24, he takes, a, it says, he takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like drunken men. The question that continues to elude Job is why? Why would God act in such a way or even allow such things to happen? And I, I'm not really sure that moments of doubt or questioning are wrong right? They're, they're not. There's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations. Uh, many of the Psalms and Proverbs are Lamentations. So questioning why and trying to understand are not necessarily bad things. Uh, where I think Job kind of gets out of whack is in asserting his righteousness, so God must be wrong in this. Um, the second part of his answer is that still he will hope in God, right? So here's where God is talking about where he doesn't blame God or he doesn't sin with his words. Uh, Job begins to lash out his, at his accusers, his friends, but not really at God, right? In verse 8 and 9, Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? Job's version, this is kind of Job's version, is 
of let him who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Uh, Job is insisting on justifying himself in front of God, though. In verse 18, he says, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. He asks God to grant him two requests during this testimony. In verse 21, he says, One, withdraw your hand far from me. And two, let not dread of you terrify me. So he wants his day in court, but he's afraid that the great and greatness and the power of God would overwhelm him and force him to withdraw or uh, hide in fear rather than present his case. So I wonder if Job is asking this out of defiance or genuine curiosity. In verse 23, when he asks, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Does he truly think God's answer will be that he has none, that he's blameless? Would we think that? I know I wouldn't. I know I'm not sinless or blameless. I'm no Job, apparently. Uh, so that question just creeps into my head every time I read this is, does he really think God's answer to that question or to this is that he's going to be blameless and without sin? Um, in chapter 14 uh, is the third part of his answer, and, and that is that death comes soon to all, right? Job seems to believe that death is the end for man. In Verse 12, he states, So man lies down and rises not again, till the heavens are no more, and he will not awake or be roused out of this sleep. We'll talk a lot more about this when we get toward the end in the lessons that I kind of pull out of the, the whole thing. Uh, I believe I had five lessons that I'll give you, and that's probably going to be in the second podcast. So bear with me uh, and stick with this one for now. Um in verses 18 and 19, Job says, But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. Ouch. Um, that's pain talking. That's grief talking. That's fear talking. Uh, it's confusion talking, really. Um, so that ends the um, first cycle of speeches between Job and his friends. I'm going to take a quick break, and then I will jump into the second cycle of speeches. I'll be right back. All right, guys, I am back and we're in the second cycle of speeches, which takes us from about uh, chapter 15 through about chapter 21. OK, so we're back to Eliphaz again, right? He accuses Job of failing to fear God, right? And, and again, by fear, we don't mean crawl under your bed and cower. We mean respect admire, uh, see God as a greater being, uh, praise, worship, 
right? Those are the what what they mean by fear in this uh, respect. So in verse uh, in 15, verse two to three, uh, he again accuses Job of being full of hot air. He's not the only one. Uh, they they all kind of accuse him of this throughout, but really they're all full of hot air, but Job the most, he has the most to say. Uh, in verse eight, he says, have you listened in the counsel of God? Listened in the counsel of God. And do you limit wisdom to yourself? So are you listening to God or just yourself? And do you think your wisdom somehow exceeds God's? Verse 11 through 13, are the comforts of God too small for you or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? Eliphaz is a horrible friend. They really all are, except Elihu. Uh, who I'm not even sure was really that good of a friend. He was much younger. Uh, We'll get to that. Uh, But he is not entirely wrong about Job's claims of unjust treatment by God. In uh, chapter 16 to 17, Job replies to Eliphaz. Uh, Verse 4, Job states that he could say the same about Eliphaz, right? Uh, Aren't we all kind of guilty of some of the same stuff? Uh, Verse 12 starts to get to Job's heart. I was it. He says, I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. God messed up his comfortable life, at least in his view of things. The he had everything. It was great. It was comfortable. It was cushy. It was everything you'd want. And God messed it up. Verse 20, my friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. In uh, 17, verse 11 through 14, he seems to have accepted his faith as unjustly convicted by God to death and sentenced to Sheol. Job states, my days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister. The word Sheol is translated as netherworld, grave, and Hades in some translations of the Hebrew Bible, uh, a place of temporary residence for all who die. In Luke 16, 19 through 31, it's described as Hades, right? A place that's split by an abyss. On one side reside the righteous in comfort, and on the other side reside the unrighteous in torment, right? the Remember the a parable of the the rich uh, man who's on the torment side and he's calling out to Abraham and Lazarus who are on the other side for him to give the, or them to give him water which they can't because of the abyss 
and then he says, all right, if you can't help me, at least go back and tell my family uh, that, that I was wrong. And, and they tell him, you know, even if we could, they won't listen, right? Even if somebody could come back from the dead to tell them, they wouldn't listen. And, and that's kind of a call forward, a reference forward to Jesus, right? And all those who still don't believe though Jesus came back from the dead. Uh, anyway, we're back to uh, chapter 18 and verses uh, 1 through 21. Bildad asserts that God punishes the wicked, right? Verse 8, for he is cast into a net by his own feet and walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel and snares lay hold of him. Verse 21, surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Bildad heartlessly accuses his friend. He has no doubt that his friend is a fraud and guilty, as evidenced by his just treatment by God. As wrong-minded as Job is in some of this, uh, accusing of God and and really not listening to God, uh, his so-called friends are so much worse. Job showed great restraint in continuing this conversation because I'm pretty sure I'd have walked away by now. Uh, in uh, chapter 19, Job replies to Bildad. He calls out the hypocrisy of magnifying ourselves at the expense of others. In verse 5 and 6, If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. In what may well be one of the greatest writings about the condition of mankind in all of history, we come to what may be its greatest verse. In verse 25, Job states a belief that would not come to fruition for thousands of years. He states, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And this this is very important for several reasons, and, and one of the most is they can't possibly know the future. Right? He can't possibly know the future, but he trusts God that he'll be redeemed. After all of his talk of righteousness and unjust treatment, he's finally admitting that he needs a redeemer. He knows that redeemer lives. He doesn't think or even believe. He knows. He also knows that when all is said and done, that Redeemer will stand upon the earth. This is huge because it really goes against orthodoxy of the time. They, and I'll get into this a little bit more later, but they don't really believe in any afterlife. You've seen or heard nothing about any type of afterlife up till now, which is one of the major themes of this. Um, they never even consider it. It just wasn't part of their theology at the time. Uh, but somehow he knows that there's a Redeemer and that he lives and that he will stand at the end. Um, Zophar then pipes in again and says that the wicked will suffer 
verses 27 and 28, the heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. So he's basically saying that all these things happen to you, so you are unrighteous. Uh, Job asserts that the wicked do prosper. In verse 7, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? In verses 23 to 26, one dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of, of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted prosperity. They lay down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. So it doesn't, he's saying it doesn't matter if you're righteous or not. In the end, both die and that's it. It's over, right? So now we get into the third cycle of speeches. Uh, Eliphaz again asserts that Job's wickedness is great. We're in chapter 22 now, by the way, in case you're trying to follow along in some way. Uh, he makes many accusations against Job. 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 Uh, he says uh, that he is stripping clothes from the naked in verse 6, that he withheld food from the hungry in verse 7, that he withheld water from the thirsty, also verse 7, uh, that he sent widows and the fatherless away empty in verse 9. In verse 23, he says, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents. So he's saying, go back to God and repent of all your sins. Because obviously you've sinned, you're being punished. Uh, Job replies, where is God? In verses 8 through 10 of uh, chapter 23, he says, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. And on the left hand, when he is working... I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take when he has tried me. I shall come out as gold. So he's again saying that when God gets around to testing him, he's going to pass. Uh, he is righteous. In uh, 24 verse 25, he asks, If it is not so... Who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? Well, really, there's only one person who can. The uh, friends seem to enjoy calling him out, um, but there's really only one that can do that, prove him a liar or show that there's nothing to what he says, and that's God, right? Uh, Bildad then asserts that man cannot be righteous in verse uh, 5 to 6 of uh, chapter 25, he states, Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm. In uh, chapter 26, Job asserts that God's majesty is unsearchable. Job lists mighty powers of God and asks in verse 14, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power who can understand. 
as God lives, who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. He's not lying. He is telling the truth. He's just missing the obvious that there's more to the story that he doesn't understand. Here in uh, chapter 28, uh, verses 1 through 28, the whole chapter is an interlude. It's really a poem about wisdom. And I felt like I should read through the whole thing. And I I may end here uh, and pick up on the second podcast after that. Let's see where we are on time when I get through this. So uh, I'm starting actually in verse 12. uh, But where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and it is not found in the land of the living. That's huge, right? Um, it's, It's important to note that If our worth is not found in the land of the living, then where is it found? Is it found? It does. Obviously, he doesn't believe in an afterlife. So I guess he's saying that our worth is found in God because as his creation in his image, um, our worth is determined by him. but we know there's more to it, right? It's not found in the land of the living, but in the next world, in the kingdom, right? In verse 14, the deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. Verse 15, it cannot be bought for gold and silver, cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all of the living and concealed from the birds of the air. In verse 22, he says, Abaddon and Death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. So Abaddon and Death do not understand wisdom, obviously. In Revelation 9-11, Abaddon is described as a destroyer, uh, the angel of the abyss, and as the king of a plague of locusts resembling horses with crowned human faces, women's hair, lion's teeth, wings, iron breastplates, and a tail with a scorpion stinger that torments for five months anyone who does not have the seal. Okay, and that's in Revelations. Uh, In verse 23, uh, he goes on, God understands the way to it and knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight, and apportion the waters by measure when he made a decree over the rain or for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder 
Then he saw it and declared it and established it and searched it out. Verse 28, and he said to the man or to man, behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. So the fear of the Lord is wisdom and turning away from evil is understanding. It's so interesting how this weaves together. Um, In section four, we'll get into, or in the next podcast, which will be section four, we'll get into um, the monologues of Job, Elihu, and God. And this is kind of what wraps it up, right? Um, Job kind of gives his closing arguments to his friends. uh, And then Elihu uh, speaks uh, his part. And he's the younger man of the group and kind of waits until the end uh, to speak his piece, uh, letting the older and should be more wise speak before him. Uh, But as we see, that's not necessarily always the case. And then God shows up and gets involved, which it gets really good. And then we're going to talk about some lessons uh, from the perspective of each of these characters, right? Um, Job's wife, briefly, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and kind of what happens in the three cycles of the argument. Elihu's argument, Job's uh, argument, lessons learned from Job's argument. Uh, And then I want to discuss five uh, takeaways, five lessons that we should learn from this book. Um, So I'm going to leave you at that for right now. And uh, we'll call this uh, the part one of the Job podcast. Uh, I'll do part two. I'll try to record it uh, soon and get it uh, up and running within a week. So you won't have long to wait. Um, I appreciate your patience. All of those of you who can continue to listen, I appreciate that. Uh, I hope that you're getting something from it. Um, All I'm trying to do here is to present things maybe in an understandable way, a layman's uh, look at some of these topics and situations. But as you can see, most of what I'm gleaning from this is from the Bible itself. Um, I'm not putting in my own bias. At least I hope I'm not. If I am, feel free to call me out on it. Uh, I'm I'm pretty tough. I can take it. Uh, So until next week, I'll be praying for you. I hope you guys are having a good start to the new year. Uh, I'll be praying for you. If you go to Bridgewood, I know we've been praying through our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, I hope that's working well for you. I hope you're getting a lot from God in this time of connection. Uh, I will see you in a, well, you'll hear me in about a week. Hopefully I'll see you sooner. Uh, And uh, I'll be praying for you until we talk again. Rise up.